Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super exciting guests that we have today. We're going to be talking a lot about building, scaling, financing, I mean, working and dealing with downturns, but really the journey of building a billion-dollar company. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Manish Sood. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alejandro. Uh, it's great to be on the show. Thank you for having me here. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane because you were born in India, in Delhi. So how was life growing up in Delhi? As I was growing up, it was... Uh, you know, before India went through its wave of uh, uh, opening up the markets uh, to international players and companies. And, uh, you know, it was a closed market. It was uh, lots of people uh, at my age uh, growing up there, uh, where most of our parents were working for large government organizations. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a different time and era at that point in time. Uh, so entrepreneurship was not necessarily the top of list item for anybody growing up during that time. Well, obviously, top of the list always in India is a really big time degrees. And in this case, you know, like you definitely follow that path and studied engineering. So why do you think that there's that much of a social pressure in India around becoming an engineer or becoming a doctor? What's what's the deal? Think about the time that we were growing up in, um, you know, India going through independence, you know, as a company growing up, a lot of the job opportunities were with the government sector. And, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, as I mentioned, was not big on the list. So the best way for anybody to succeed was to go become a doctor or an engineer, because those were the jobs that were most sought after. And, uh, you know, definitely assured a good standard of living for anybody in that profession. So that was that was the rallying cry for all of the the kids growing up. Uh, a lot of pressure on how to succeed in that type of a model depended on getting to the a better education and degrees as you move forward. Now now in your case, you know, you worked there after after getting your degree uh, for about four years. Uh, and then eventually you landed here in the U.S., uh, particularly in this case in Chicago. So how do you end up in the U.S.? How was that, how was that process like? Why, why did that happen? Yeah, uh, right around that time, you know, for anybody who had uh, uh, a background in uh, uh, software uh, technology, there were lots of opportunities that were opening up in the U.S. And uh, I, I got access to such an opportunity where I was hired by a company in in the U.S. Uh, and uh, they offered to move me to Chicago. Uh, I took that opportunity up. There had always been a desire to go explore the world and see, uh, you know, what other opportunities uh, in a place like U.S. would be available. So with that, I made the move, came to Chicago, and uh, very soon I was uh, working on a project uh, in the Silicon Valley. So I lasted about six months uh, in the Chicago winter uh, before uh, I was exposed to life in Silicon Valley. And after that, there was no looking back. 
you know, the, the thriving ecosystem in Silicon Valley, the innovation that was taking place even, even in early 2000s uh, was extremely amazing and interesting uh, for me uh, as, a, as a person working in the software area. And in your case, you join an early stage company, which is always the best way to get your feet wet in the venture world. And this company called Cyperion, you know, you were there for quite a while and, and you were able to really see the full cycle from the beginning all the way to the acquisition. So how was this journey uh, for you like? Uh, the journey at Cyperion, where I started in 2002, uh, right after the telecom bust, I was, I was at a telecom company before that. But, uh, you know, that sort of uh, forced me to look at opportunities and, uh, you know, being in Silicon Valley, the idea of going and working for an early stage startup was really appealing. And the best part was that they were trying to productize the type of work that I had done uh, with my customers before. So with that in mind, uh, you know, I joined a team of about uh, 10 engineers who were trying to bring this concept to life. Uh, they didn't even have a name for a category. They were just calling it, you know, customer data integration at that point in time. And later on, as we went through the various stages of growth, it became master data management uh, as a as a terminology uh, that uh, the industry evolved to. We we not only worked with lots of different customers in different verticals, but uh, got to see the cycle of, you know, how do you take a company from an idea, 10 people working on it to, you know, about 200 people and then getting acquired by Informatica in 2010. And then seeing a little bit of the movie after the acquisition where uh, when a large company picks up a small software startup, how do they leverage it in their go-to market? Because they already have a customer base and they're trying to scale the the go-to-market side of the equation with a new product capability. Um, you know, that entire cycle, that entire journey was extremely uh, interesting and also a great learning because having seen that cycle, that really informed how I could go about it if I were to embark on that journey once again and start with an idea from scratch. Now, in this case, I mean, you stayed with Hyperion for... Seven years. I mean, that like in dog years is like a hundred in the startup world. So what do you think kept you for, for that long with the company? The area of work was extremely interesting. The customers that we were working with were large financial institutions, insurance companies, uh, you know, retail and pharma type of companies. And seeing how they were able to get benefit from something that we had conceived as an idea was extremely fulfilling. And every year it was, you know, the the same type of fulfillment that kept me in that journey for a long time. And yes, in in the uh, software world those are dog years, but uh, again, you know, that was that was an extremely uh, interesting journey. But uh, the the key thing out of it was that every year there was growth personally for me as well as for the business that I was engaged with. And and that is an interesting aspect that you know it was it was a lot of learning every twelve months, which uh, didn't really uh, you know uh, I I stayed in the game uh, and didn't look around for what else was possible. So th that was that was maybe 
a little bit of the blinders on, but uh, you know the valuable experience that I gained out of it was the entire life cycle that you go through in such a journey. So then once the company got acquired, you know, at this point you have the full, you know, visibility into what the cycle of a early stage hyper growth company is. So, I mean, incredible experience. Uh, and what happened next? You know, we, we have been acquired by Informatica and uh, the journey that I'm starting to see is that there is going to be a lot of effort and time and all for the right reasons to go sell that product that they have just acquired to the 4,000 plus customers that they have, which is, which is a huge market opportunity in that type of a scenario. But at the same time, the, the market was evolving. The needs of the customers that I was working with were evolving. And it was very clear and evident that the direction that we were headed in as an industry would require net new capabilities to be brought to life. Now, the choice was, you know, here's something that we have built that will be scaled to, um, you know, very large proportion by this new company that has acquired us, or, you know, is it more attractive to go build something from scratch where we can solve the emerging customer problem in a net new way? And and that that's where... Yeah, the fork in the road came where I had to make a decision which thing to go work on and what excited me more about the opportunity. And in this case, uh, I decided that in 2011, um, I would leave Informatica, start Relpio, because the market opportunity that was going to evolve in the next couple of decades was going to be so large that even starting on something that was just an idea and building something for that need would be much more compelling and larger in scope and size that uh, it was well worth the effort. So at this point, you start with Realtio, you know, which is your, your baby, you know, the company you, you, you founded. So, so how was, I mean, especially for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of the company? How do you guys make money? So we are a software as a service data management platform. We have built this capability from day one, not only as a software as a service capability, but we have built it on public cloud infrastructure. And there, there were some you know, foundational elements of the thesis that we uh, formed this around. We, we looked at it as a layer cake of innovation where every previous version of the software that had been created in this space had some limitations. But at the same time, there was this baggage of on-prem software in this space, which we thought was best solved by leveraging public cloud infrastructure, new concepts and infrastructure that were horizontally scaling. And with all of that in mind as the technical underpinnings, we decided that as a software as a service company, the way to bring this to life, we would have to change the paradigm for our customers. And in that changing paradigm, we would have to go to a monetization model where we have to align our pricing or how we sell to the value that we provide. So in our case, um, you know, we take data from multiple sources uh, and unify that data into, uh, let's say, 360-degree view of customer or product or supplier type of information that comes from these multiple streams or sources um, or applications that are in the enterprise. And at the end, 
of how we crunch through that data, we end up with a unified view of that information from these multiple streams. So we, we charge our customers based on the number of consolidated profiles of customers, products, supplier type of information that they are managing inside our platform, uh, which is also the core value that they're deriving by creating a single source of truth for such information that they run their business on. So that, that became the commercialization model for us. And uh, you know, the second part of the commercialization for us was that we always looked at this as a horizontal technical problem which applies to every vertical, every business that is out there, a company of every size, large, medium, or small. But in terms of how you bring this to market, sometimes you run into the boon and bane of horizontal platform technologies, which is that you can solve every problem in every vertical, in every business use case with a horizontal platform, but how do you pick and choose or prioritize which verticals to go after first. So even though we designed our platform as a horizontal capability, we made our go-to-market more vertical-oriented. So we first started talking to customers in life sciences. And then after we found some success there, we looked at what are the other verticals that have similar kinds of needs so that we could expand into similar verticals with the same set of concepts and create high degree of repeatability in our go-to-market motion. So that's how we went from life sciences to healthcare, healthcare to insurance, insurance to financial services, uh, retail and high tech. Those are some of the key verticals that we are now present in and work with uh, customers in. But uh, at the same time, you know, some amount of discipline in terms of how you go apply a vertical-oriented go-to-market strategy to a horizontal platform or product capability that you're building. And I know that you guys also have raised uh, quite a bit of money. So how much money have you guys raised to date? In aggregate, since uh, our foundation, we have raised about $237 million. Our last round of capital uh, raise uh, was in November uh, of uh, 2021. And uh, that was a $120 million round uh, led by Brighton Park Capital. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike sieverson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C 
all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. I know that for you guys, the Series A took a little bit of time to raise. I mean, literally, we're talking about like more than four years. Why was that the case? Great question. You know, when I started in 2011, I had never raised capital before. I had never founded a company, run it as a CEO. Um, and uh, not having some of that experience, uh, you know, first of all, uh, the only way I knew that I could go build a product around this was to go back and talk to customers. In fact, before we even raised any kind of capital, I had signed up customers who were already paying us for the product that we were building in parallel. Um, and some of these early customers were more interested in the vision and the value that it could bring to their companies or to their business. And they were willing to pay for that even even in those early stages to partner with us and help shape the the direction of the product and uh, by the time we got to around uh, you know early 20 uh, late 2013 early 2014 we were generating some durable long term revenue with some long term contracts with these customers and uh, we had grown the business to almost cash flow break even by the time we got to the end of 2014 uh, at about a million dollars uh, in ARR being generated. And at that point, we thought that it was the right time for us to scale our operations and start building a go-to-market machine around it. And that's when we reached out and started to have some serious discussions around fundraising. And the other, other half of the story was that not having raised capital before, uh, Plus the fact that we were working in a complex area that wasn't as easy or as simple to explain to some of the investors who were looking for, uh, you know, is this an application? Is this a platform? How do you, uh, how long does it take for customers to get up and running? None of those answers were simple or straightforward or easy. And we had to refine our story of the the product and the capabilities and the value that it would bring to the customers. And a little bit of it, we had to actually show proof and examples before some of the investors that we were talking to could really understand the overall concept. And that's where, um, you know, a little bit of the maturity, both of the, the market as well as the concept that we were bringing to life and the way in which we told the story all of those three things had to evolve before we could get to meaningful conversations uh, with some of the early investors who did participate and led the Series A round for us. So during, during obviously, those different cycles that you guys have gone through, you know, obviously, as they say, every financing cycle goes in parallel with a life cycle, you know, of the, of the business that you are looking to unlock. But in this case, you know, as an entrepreneur, you've had the highs, you've had the lows. So how do you really push through and have the right type of determination to really tackle whatever is in front of you? There is never a straight line to this growth. We have gone from zero to a hundred plus million dollars of ARR uh, in the last uh, 10 years. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, every company goes through its highs and lows. There, there were some hurdles and 
how we raised our, um, you know, got to our Series A and Series B round of financing. It wasn't straightforward. It wasn't easy. There was a lot of effort that was put into it. You know, lots of uh, uh, ups and downs in those. Even the customers that we were working with, we had some situations where beyond our control, beyond the customer's control, you know, for example, one of our earliest customers that we had was uh, uh, a combination where two extremely large companies, a $45 billion business and a $25 billion business, they were coming together in a uh, M&A transaction and Reltio was chosen as the data platform to combine the data for customers, products, suppliers that they were working with across two companies in this kind of an M&A situation. And that was going to drive hundreds of millions dollars worth of synergies even before the M&A uh, was to consummate. But, um, you know, it was one of our largest deals. It was uh, revenue uh, that was $3 million a year in the early days. But somehow we ran into a situation where the Federal Trade Commission stuck that M&A down. They rejected it. And that caused that revenue stream for us to disappear. And you know, when you're, when you're in the early stages of your life cycle, haven't really raised any capital, and uh, you lose $3 million worth of annual recurring revenue, that is a big hit to the company. But, you know, is the, is the product that you're working on wrong or is the go-to-market wrong? In, those, in that case, none of those things were wrong, but we still had a revenue hit that we had to work through and survive. So those types of highs and lows happen to every business. You know, you also run into situations that you have never thought would happen, such as, you know, what everybody had to go through in the COVID type of a scenario, you, you're never prepared for those situations, but you have to figure out a way through those. And the only way you can do that is by believing in the core concept or the direction that you're working on and maintaining the path towards that North Star while making sure you're protecting your business by managing the finances, by managing you know, the the team that you're working with and keeping them committed towards the North Star direction. We had to do the same thing. And, you know, that is how we've been able to work through these ups and downs that almost every business encounters, uh, you know, during their journey. And that's that's been no different for us as well. And, you know, here we're talking about cycles and, uh, you know, obviously phases and stages. So, at what point for you, after being the CEO of the business for nine years, do you realize it's time to bring, you know, someone else and, uh, and for you to, you know, take more of the CTO role and, and, and for someone, you know, that perhaps has the right type of experience for whatever the company has in front of it, you know, for them to take the reins? At what point do you realize that's the moment to look for someone? So, uh, Alejandro, in, in this journey, um, very early on when I started RELQO, I thought that I could... Uh, you know, given the market opportunity and size, uh, if we do things right, then I would be able to take it up to $100 million in ARR. But, you know, the market opportunity is much larger. So we would really have to think about at every stage, do we have the right team that would be able to execute on it? Uh, 
And as I, as I looked at the nine years of my journey, that belief that we have to have the right team uh, at every stage of growth became uh, more concrete. And that belief drove me to think about that it's not just the, the people that I'm hiring, but at some point in time, I may have to replace myself because the opportunity that we have in front of us is much larger than my ability to continue to be the CEOs. And in this case, I used the $100 million ARR as sort of the milestone where um, once, once a startup crosses that threshold, um, you really have to think about what are the next five years going to look like and how you're going to go from 100 to a billion dollars in revenue and once again, ask the question, do we have the right team, the right skill set, the right aptitude and attitude available around the table that will help us make that next breakthrough? And that led me to the conclusion that I had to look for somebody who brought in that operational experience of having run businesses at scale in that you know, half a billion to a billion dollar type of a range and uh, get that skill set uh, at the table uh, in the team, uh, you know, right around that uh, mile marker of a hundred million dollar ARR. So that that drove the thought process, and uh, that's how I got started with the search for, you know, who would be the successor in this type of situation for me. And that is a really big deal. So I mean, what is typically the process for bringing someone like that and making sure that it's the right fit? Yeah, it's it's not easy. It's not straightforward. Uh, there there are no books that uh, describe a precise formula, and there is no precise formula for it. So it has to, you know, to a large extent, depend on what you have built out as the cultural foundation of the company, because culture drives strat strategy. And uh, in this case, you know, we had to make sure that we had a strong cultural foundation. We had the market opportunity in front of us that would allow us to make such a change and also look at the skill set that was inside the team versus where we needed to go out and complement it with the person who would come in and lead the company. So a combination of those factors led us to uh, Chris Hyland, who you know I've been able to partner with, and he's now leading the charge as the CEO at Reltio with the operational experience that he brings to the table uh, after having been at companies like Citrix at Intuit, where he's he's run teams at scale uh, and the size of the business you know, that we aspire to be. And that that is helping us at Reltio to move to that next milestone that we have now, for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and the size of Realtio today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, we are uh, at about 450 employees worldwide. Um, we have teams that are spread across the U.S., uh, Europe, and India. Uh, and um, we are uh, north of $100 million in subscription uh, annual recurring revenue at this point in time. Um, and uh, our goal is to, you know, get to the the to be a rule of forty growth company as we move forward, 
because we are trying to drive profitable growth for our business uh, as we look ahead. And if in the event, let's say you were to go to sleep tonight and you were to wake up in a world where the vision of Realty is fully realized, what would that world look like? That world would look like uh, where every company out there, every business out there has Realtio as the core operating system for data that their business runs on. Because today, uh, as you know, you know even, even a business the size of Realtio runs 100 plus different applications to engage with the customer audience that we are working with. Because think about the life cycle of uh, you know, the marketing, sales, uh, finance, support, all of these different areas touch any given customer that we work with, but the customer information is spread across all these different applications. And in order to really drive the end-to-end business synergies where we can drive growth, drive efficiency, and you know, also meet all the compliance type of requirements requires us to have a comprehensive end-to-end view of who our customer is and what we are doing with that customer at any given point in time. And that is a critical need for every business out there today. But the, the hurdles standing in the way are also the same. Multiple applications that cause fragmentation, you know, the need for digital and cloud transformation that every business is going through requires data to be the core enabling capability uh, in the center of that business ecosystem. And that's, that's what we are providing. And that's why we believe that every company, every business out there will need a relative type of a data platform capability uh, as we look at the next five to 10 year type of a time horizon. And that's, that's the opportunity that we are playing. So you've been at it now for about 11 years with Realtio. I mean, it's quite a, a good amount of time. Uh, and um, if I was to ask you, or let's say if I was to put you into a time machine and bring you back in time with all the incredible lessons no, that, you've, that you've learned you know, throughout this journey with Realtio and, and being able to have that opportunity of having a discussion with your younger self, perhaps that Manish that was still you know, at Hyperion and, and figuring, you know, the whole Silicon Valley hyper growth, you know, type of thing of startups, you know, right before you were to give that notice or right before you were to think about launching a business, imagine you were able to have a chat there with that younger Manish and give that younger Manish one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that piece of advice be and why, given what you know now? Three, three things that come to mind. The first one is our business, we are, we are in the software business. There is no capital equipment. There is no factory out there where we are stamping out you know, some kind of a product through a machine. Our core foundation is based on the people that we hire to help us fulfill our mission. And that, that is a key part of the focus that we have to go and look at so bringing in the right people, bringing, creating the right mindset, uh, creating the right cultural foundation becomes extremely important because this is all about the people, the intellectual capital, and creating the environment where these people can do the best work of their lifetime is the type of environment that we need to create. So people, culture, 
And the third thing that I would mention is we all go through cycles of, you know, the valuations are extremely high or the valuations are extremely low. Valuations don't matter. What matters is what is the durable business revenue that you're creating as you grow your business? And in order to do that, you have to, uh, you know, the, the best principle that I have come across is the rule of 40 growth company so that you can drive responsible growth for your business. Because you will have situations where your investors, depending on the flavor of the day or the month in the market related to valuations, may come to you and say, spend like crazy to drive growth or be ultra conservative because the market is you know not yet ready to see that kind of emotion. But the thing that I've found consistent and durable across all of the the different cycles that we have gone through is this notion of a rule of 40 growth time. So those are the three things that come to mind, people, culture, and rule of 40 as the durable advantage that you can build for your business. Amazing. Well, Manish, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn or, um, you know, the easiest way is Manish at Reltio.com. Well, Manish, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Well, thank you, Alejandro. This has been uh, great to be on the show, and thank you for the opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.